Today we begin a new series in the book of Hosea. So turn with me to the book of Hosea. We will be in Hosea chapter 1. It's a good place to start is the first chapter. And we'll be looking at the first nine verses. So Hosea chapter 1 verses 1 through 9. And as you turn there with me, what do you do if someone offends you? Uh, in our culture, the typical response is you offend them back, right? So, so you, if they call you a nasty name, you call them a nasty name back. Uh, if you want to be the better person, maybe you ignore them entirely, right? Ignore the offense and you just walk away. And I think especially in our culture, increasingly so, uh, to not see that person is a greater offense, right? We, we talk a lot or we hear maybe a lot in our culture about being seen, right? And so if we ignore them, that is a way to offend them. If you look to other cultures, they do it a little differently, right? And sometimes greatly different. Uh, I've been reading through a book of old tales, uh, or tales, from Japan uh, before the 1800s, so an, an ancient time in our in our culture, right from from where we are. Uh, but in this book of this anthology of tales from old Japan, uh, you have a lot of issues of shame and honor. And what you see happen is offenses to honor are dealt with by the sword. So if someone offends you. Your recourse is you take out your sword and you fight it out. And if you are shamed, so if you experience shame for whatever reason, uh, in one story, uh, a samurai was given a sword and he was to keep watch over it and someone came in and stole the sword. So he was shamed. And his response to that was, I have to commit ritual suicide. Right. So shame and honor are, are were huge issues. Uh, and I don't think that's quite to that level today in Japan currently, uh, although shame and honor is a is still a big deal there, much more than it is here. We don't really care so much about shame and honor as much. Uh, we have kind of a different worldview in that respect. But, but what's for certain is that uh, offenses can't be ignored. They can't be ignored. They have to be confronted and often right away. But what do you do if you're the Lord God? What do you do if you're the God of heaven and earth? The creator. Our holy God suffers with much offense to his name and person, to his character and commands. And he is yet long-suffering. He's long-suffering towards us, towards his people. Never, however, should we mistake God's patience as inaction. Indeed, when we come to the book of Hosea, we come to a book about the actions that God is going to take against those who are his people, those who call themselves his people. And today in our passage, I want us to see that God will not sit idly by while his people are unfaithful towards him. God will not sit idly by while his people are unfaithful towards him. So let us go to the book of Hosea. I'll read for us Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 1, going through verse 9. And this is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and then in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God, 
I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before we get into our passage proper, it's helpful to set the context a bit. As we begin our study of Hosea, uh, it's helpful to understand what's going on 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 kind of a background level here. So first we might ask, who is Hosea? Who is Hosea? Well, verse 1 tells us, well, he's the son of Beery. That's about it. As with most of the prophets, right, we don't really know much about them. And there's good reason for that. The issue that God is dealing with the people isn't about the person who's giving the message. It's about the message itself. So we know enough about Hosea in order to understand the message that he is giving. Right? We don't know his profession, but we do know that uh, he has a family. And we don't know much about his family other than what God intends us to know that serves a purpose of the message of God. Right? So this is who Hosea is. We do know that he's a faithful man in an unfaithful culture. That's something that we can say about him, right? Well, who is Hosea preaching to, right? So this is a message of God, and who is he preaching this message of God to? Well, Hosea's ministry was in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's not that he's unconcerned with the southern kingdom of Judah, but predominantly his ministry is to the north. He's preaching to the people of Israel. When does Hosea preach? So when is all this taking place? Was this last week? No, it wasn't last week, right? A little bit further back than that. Uh, Verse 1 tells us something of the span of Hosea's ministry. We see uh, some lists of king here. And he first probably started preaching during the the end of Jeroboam II's reign. So we don't have Jeroboam listed that way, but we see him called Jeroboam the son of Joash. There was a Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That was the first Jeroboam. So we're going to call this guy second Jeroboam, Jeroboam the second. Uh, and that ended, Jeroboam the second's reign ended in 753 BC. So somewhere around there, give or take maybe five or six years, Hosea started preaching to the people. And we see in, under the list of the kings of Judah, uh, the last king listed is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah's last year as king was probably about 687 B.C. So that's about a span of 66 years, and it's unlikely that Hosea's ministry lasted for 66 years. Uh, So we probably say, uh, scholars give probably about a 30-year period where Hosea preached. So somewhere during that, about 30 years, sometime before Jeroboam II died, and during the midst of Hezekiah's. Uh, kingship. So about 30 to 40 years. And there's a couple things to note about this list that we have in verse 1. We have two lists of kings. And this is important for us because one is for the northern kingdom of Israel and one is for the southern kingdom of of Judah. Uh, So what we're dealing with is the divided kingdom. So this tells us where it is. This is after Solomon's reign. This is after David, Solomon, Then came Solomon's son, who was a knucklehead, who listened to his friends more than the elders, and the the kingdom was fractured. The kingdom split. Uh, And understand that all happened under the auspices of the sovereignty of God. This was God's purpose. It wasn't an accident. God didn't look up and go, oh, no, what did you all do? Uh, Right, this was God's purpose. But this just reminds us that this is taking place in the context of a divided Israel. You have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom. You have worship in Jerusalem and you have worship in Samaria. So you have, uh, and we could ask the question, right? Where did God say worship of him should take place? In Jerusalem, right? We have that scene with the woman at the well in John 4, where the woman at the well says, well, you Jews say that worship has to take place in Jerusalem, but we say it takes place here. And there's good reason for that. Jeroboam I set up a second site of worship in the northern kingdom because he didn't want people going back south and maybe get the idea, well, things are so much better down in Judah, let's just join them again. So he set up a second site of worship. It was self-serving. And that false worship, that second center of worship, continues 
to Hosea's day. So as we come to Hosea, this is what he's dealing with, a divided kingdom and divided worship. We see that there's only one king listed uh, in the line of the king of Israel, Jeroboam. And we kind of have to ask the question, right? Because I said Hosea's ministry started towards the end of Jeroboam II's reign. But that means that there were more kings after that. Why is there only one king listed? Well, it's probably something like Jeroboam is the, the kind of figurehead to indicate this. Um, if we go through and look at the kings, there was a lot of turmoil that took place in the northern kingdom as it came to the kings. It could be that Hosea, being a prophet of God, isn't really concerned with the kings of the northern kingdom. And why might he not be concerned? Because they're, in one sense, illegitimate. Who was supposed to be king over the, the people of God's people? Someone from the line of David. Right. So so there could be some issue with that. Um, But like I said, it could be the just the turmoil that took place in the the time of Hosea's ministry. Something like six kings came after Jeroboam during Hosea's ministry. Six. Whereas you see, there's only four listed for the kings of Judah. You have at least seven during during Hosea's ministry in the north. Right, something about like that, uh, and, and literally, they they rose and fell sometimes in the matter of months. Um, Jeroboam's son Zechariah lasted six months on the throne, so Jeroboam dies, his son ascends, and within six months, not even enough time to have a baby, he's dead. He's executed, and his executioner Shalem uh, took the throne, and he was king for a whole whopping one month. He had a one-month special. Um, there's something in there, uh, a, a modern-day modern, modern day parallel to this, is the, the last prime minister of the uh, British, the you know, uh, of, of Great Britain, didn't outlast a head of lettuce. Right? So we could probably think of that like with Shalom here, right? Didn't have a very long time. So it's a tumultuous time. Uh, the next king after him, King Menahem, uh, lasted 10 years, so there was a little bit more stability there. But you can kind of understand the, the cumbersome nature of listing all these kings of the northern kingdom when it's not really pertinent. Uh, it doesn't really give us, it's not helpful. Hosea is not a book of history. Hosea is a book of prophecy, of oracle. And that takes us to what form does this book take, take in, uh, right? What kind of book is this? We might say it's kind of sermonic, not demonic, sermonic. And that's probably not a real word, but it didn't come up with a wavy underline. So maybe it is, uh, but it might be something I made up there. Uh, what I mean by that, it's a book of oracles, right? These are a book of oracles of judgment and restoration, of blessing and curse. And in that way, they share a lot with what we see in the book of Deuteronomy, right? There's blessings and there's curses, And we see this kind of take place. It could have been that what we read in Hosea was first preached to the people and then later written down and compiled. But we don't know that to be certain. It could be that they were written down and and spread abroad that way and then at some point they were compiled, whether by Hosea or someone after him. And as we approach this book, we have to understand that there are are not a few difficulties in approaching the book of Hosea. Next to the book of Job, so only Job is greater in this problem, is that we don't really have a full grasp or understanding of the Hebrew language used in it. it. It has one of the most difficult of Hebrew texts in the Bible, again, second only to Job. The difficulties in translating it and understanding it lie in that we don't really know the content and the context of the language it was written in. And what do I mean by that? It was likely, it seems to be likely, or scholars suggest, that it's written in a northern kingdom dialect, which the northern kingdom falls first and is carried away by Assyria. And so it's it's likely that there's just some difficulties there because it's a it's a a point that we don't know. 
And we're also so far removed from it generationally, right? So many years removed from it that it can be difficult to really understand what's happening. It's difficult to match up the prophecies that Hosea gives in the actual events that take place in history. Um, so, so it's just a difficult book in that way. The other thing is that Hosea uses a lot of vivid imagery. It's, it's poetic in parts. And so it can be difficult for us to understand that because poetry is metaphorical. And so if we don't have the key to unlock, to understand the, the metaphor, it can be difficult for us to understand and interpret it. That's not to say that we come to Hosea and we don't know anything. It's just to say that sometimes along the way there are going to be uh, various uh, competing ideas that we have to come to a conclusion on. And actually we begin with that even in our passage today. There are some competing ideas that we have to deal with. But what's the point of all this? Why do I give all this? I'm not, I'm not here to give you a lecture. So why do I give you all this information? Well, I want to give you a sense of where we are as we pick up the book of Hosea. We need to enter into the shoes of Hosea and the shoes of the people who heard Hosea preaching, because that's how we're going to understand it. Uh, during the outset of Hosea's ministry, under the reign of Jeroboam II, who had a very long reign, about 41 years, um, things were well materially. There was a lot of good things happening in the northern kingdom of Israel during this time. But spiritually, things were grim. So grim, in fact, that God calls Hosea into the prophetic ministry to vividly portray and preach to the people about what is going to befall them because of their evil ways. And all along, we need to remember that Hosea was a real person. Gomer was a real person. His children, they were real too. Or maybe not, we'll get there. I'll tease that. But the people he, whom he preached to were real. They had eternal souls. They were created in the image of God. And more than that, God had called them, right, of the tribes, God had called them to be his special people. And so we, were, we need to remember that as we come into our passage because we're dealing with real people, not hypothetical people. And what is the state of their souls as Hosea preaches unto them? And what is the state of their souls at the end of his preaching? Right? That's an important question for us to consider the people. It's a more important question that we consider of us our, ourselves here today. But let's go into our passage and see first the command... Take a wife. Take a wife, and we'll look at verses 1 through 3. Take a wife. We've already discussed verse 1 as kind of the context, the history to the verse, but I do want to point out the very beginning of it, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. This is the word of the Lord. What we're about to enter into is not Hosea's punditry. And what I mean by that is Hosea wasn't invited onto the early ancient Israelite version of Fox News to give his opinion as to what was going on in the northern kingdom. We don't care what Hosea thought about the northern kingdom in that sense, right? But this is the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord thinks of the northern kingdom of Israel. And as it is a message from on high, we ought to take it as the people of Israel ought to have taken it. As such, right? They should have received it as something worthy of all consideration and attention. And that holds true for us today. We need to consider this with all consideration and attention. Listen, my goal in preaching is not to make you bored. You may think differently on that, uh, on that occasion. But my goal also isn't to entertain. I'm not an entertainer. My goal is to lift up the word of God. And it should be your goal to try to understand it, to study it. This is what the Lord God has given breath to. He, our creator and redeemer, has spoken. So we best listen and listen well. So that's my charge to you. That would be the charge of Hosea to the people. Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says, right? That's why we see that time and again. 
Verse 2 tells us, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. What was the first message to Hosea? It was to find a wife. And this is something that Lady Catherine de Berg would well approve of. But not the place where he was supposed to pick one up. Because Hosea was called to go take a wife of whoredom or harlotry or of prostitution. And here we must ask the question, what are we to make of this wife that he is supposed to take? We could first understand this as a metaphorical call. Right, a metaphorical, to understand that word of whoredom as metaphor. The Hebrew does not demand that we take this literally. It doesn't demand that we understand this as her profession. So, right, the Hebrew word there that we see of whoredom in the ESV, uh, elsewhere it's of, of prostitution of, or of harlotry, depending on your um, translation. That word there isn't the word we typically would see for someone whose profession is of that. So we don't have to understand this as she was literally a prostitute. We could understand this um, differently, right? We don't have to believe that Jose went down to the local brothel and said, I choose you, like some form of bad Pokemon, right? Calvin suggests, and he follows Jewish writers in this accord, that everything that we see in verse 2 and following is here a vision given by God. So Calvin says that this is all vision. It's not something he actually did. But it was a vision he had of God, and God spoke to him in this vision, and this is what transpired in his vision. John Gill, uh, another commentator, suggests that this is all a parable, that this is a parable. So it's, again, it's not something that literally happened, but it's metaphorically what has occurred. Uh, some commentators suggest that, uh, that he did take this wife, right? He did take Comer as his wife. And the meaning of whoredom is, again, it's a metaphorical meaning, and it's to say something like, go and take a woman from this whoring culture. So go and take a woman who is a product of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, the culture. So, so go and take a woman who is steeped in this culture of unfaithfulness. And in, indeed, we have to realize, what's the whole point in God saying this, right? We see it in verse 2. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. This is the purpose that God gives, and so we can't forget this purpose in this. He is asking Hosea to make a sacrifice of his personal life in order to show the people exactly how they have been acting. Right? That's the whole point. And there are times when the prophets are called to do strange things to illustrate God's message. For example, we go to Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And there are many occasions in the book of Ezekiel, so this is just one. And this is one of the less weird ones, maybe. Uh, there's a time when I think he's instructed to go walk around naked everywhere. And that's an illustration to the people. But anyways, Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says, And you, son of man... Take a brick and lay it before you and engrave, engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it. And let it be in a stage of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Right? Ezekiel's told to set up a little diorama. Right? Get out your little toys and start making a little diorama of a siege of a city. He's told to do many of the strange things so that the people would ask, Ezekiel, what are you doing? Are you like crazy or like what's going? And then Ezekiel has a moment there to say, let me tell you what I'm doing. This is what the Lord says. This brick is Jerusalem. And don't think that it's not going to be sieged. It's a promise from the Lord. This is what he's going to do. Judgment has come. So too for Hosea. If we take this as metaphor, we take Gomer as a woman who is steeped in the culture of the Israelites, a culture that is filled with false worship 
worship of false idols. And guess what? She's going to have children of whoredom because those children are going to be raised into the same culture of false worship, be unable to escape from it. And at this point, we should remark that this is what culture does, right? It reproduces itself. Make no mistake that you are shaped by the culture around you. You share in it. In whatever ways you don't acknowledge that and intentionally work against it, you will be driven by it. Our culture loves sex and money. It should not surprise us then when we find those same feelings within us as well. It should not surprise us then when those who are over our culture, when we think of the cultural elites, and I'm not talking about a bunch of people sitting on, uh, you know, plush chairs somewhere else. I'm just talking about those who lead our culture. Who leads our culture? Well, in the political realm, we have politicians. Should it surprise us that politicians commit adultery? Should it surprise us when we learn that they're corrupt and driven by greed? That's what our culture is. It shouldn't surprise us our politicians look like that. Should it surprise us that in Hollywood, right, a driving force of culture, that we find a wantonness, an unfaithfulness? No. In academics, and even in the church, we see these same things. Because we, who are our products of our culture, are shaped by it. And unless we're working against it, we live in it. And we live out these things. Right? So don't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised that Hosea marrying a woman of the northern kingdom would have a woman who is metaphorically just like all the rest, false in their worship. So we could understand this as, as metaphorical or a vision, or a parable, right? The second thing we could say is we could say that this is literal. There's nothing to say here that this is not something that literally happened. Um, if Gomer is the same woman that we see in chapter 3, which, there, again, there's some debate here. That's a little bit of a spoiler as you get there. When he is told to go and buy back a wife, if it's the same woman, well, she's unfaithful, right? She's a wife of whoredom. We see that. Um, but we can see here that it's literal, right? We could see it as literal. And perhaps we see this less as, right, Gomer's a call girl, and more like Gomer just survives off of uh, the gifts of her generous lovers, right? So she looks for those men who are willing to put up with her and pay her bills. Um, we have different words for that in our culture today, right? I'll let you uh, have that, but... All this does, though, introduce some difficulties, right? So if Gomer is literally something like a prostitute, though she may not be exactly a prostitute, does Hosea lose his credibility? He's in a wanton culture and decrying them for wantonness, and here he is marrying someone who is wanton, right? So wouldn't they just say, Hosea, you talk a lot about all this evil, and like, look at you. Clean out your own house first, and then come come talk to us. So that does pro provide us a, a great difficulty in understanding this as literal. So I just give that to you as, an, uh, as a pushback. I think you need to decide for yourself here. It's a thorny situation that we have, but the point remains the same, right? The, the point in if we take this more metaphorically as a vision, or if we take this as quite literal, uh, the point is this. There is great unfaithfulness in the land of Israel. They have forsake, forsaken the Lord God. They forsook him. Verse 3 tells us, so Hosea finds Gomer. And Gomer produces for Hosea a son, to which we turn next in this strange family saga as we look at God scatters. God scatters in verses 4 and 5. God scatters. The Lord speaks again and says to him, Call his name Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. This is the Lord's purpose. And even Hosea's children, if they are indeed real children, right? Uh, Hosea's children aren't for his own sake. 
therefore the message of God, therefore the purpose of God. God wants to speak to a people who are hard of hearing. And he is to name his first son Jezreel. And the name can mean something like the Lord sows, which sounds kind of positive. Or it could mean something like the Lord scatters, which is a bit more ominous. This is a name uh, which is also a place that the people of Israel might know. And especially when we connect it to the house of Jehu. So if you go to 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 11. 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 11. We see, so Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel. All his great men and his close friends and his priests until he left him none remaining. So in the place of Jezreel, the house of Jehu ended the house of Ahab by a great slaughter. Ahab's house was slaughtered, and this was fulfillment of God's judgment against the house of Ahab for the false worship of Baal, which, who is uh, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, who is a descendant of Jehu, who does he worship? Who are the people of the northern kingdom of Israel worshiping? Baal, the same God God has already denounced and judged. The people are still worshiping. So it was in this place of Jezreel that the word of God was carried out against Ahab. And now God says to the progeny of Jehu that their time on the throne is drawing short. There will be another slaughter. Right? This is what God is saying. I will punish the house of Jehu. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. The punishment is to come because they have failed to learn. Right, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, has failed to learn what had transpired against Ahab. They were unfaithful and did evil, and accordingly the sins of the father were brought down onto the shoulders of the children and the children's children, and the same sins were passed down from generation to generation to generation. And it's not just that the kings did evil, Right? But the people follow after the kings. The people are following after the false priests. They're following after and worship of the false god. They did not purge the evil from their land, which is a command out that we see often in the book of Leviticus. They sought not the Lord. God will not sit idly by while his people are unfaithful towards him. That is the message of Hosea again and again. Verse 5 tells us, And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. God will snap the bow of Israel. Right? He's going to break their strength. This would then defeat. Right? What do you do when you defeat the opposing army and you capture them? You break their weapons. Why? Because it shows that they're not going to be able to use them against you. Right? They can't pick them back up. A broken bow won't fire. And in a place where they thought they had won victory, right, the Valley of Jezreel, where it appeared that Baal, the false god of the people, had won, there would instead be a great defeat. The first of the children of Hosea is a promise unto the wayward people of God that they would face shameful defeat. They had offended their true God with worship of a false god. But it gets worse. So let's see next, God merciless. God merciless in verses 6 and 7. God merciless. Gomer gives birth to a daughter. She conceives and gives birth to a daughter. Now, we have to comment upon the fact that some take the conspicuous lack of bore him a daughter, so bore as in bore Hosea a daughter, as evidence that Gomer is unfaithful and has a child out of wedlock, right, with someone else, an adulterous child there is nothing in the 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 scripture that gives us certainty to say that so i want to be clear about that some people think that some scholars argue that but there's nothing in the in the hebrew that would indicate that uh indeed the hebrew would allow for the omission of for him 
because it's understood. We're talking about Hosea and Gomer. Uh, even in our own culture, for instance, in our own state, if a couple is married, the presumption of the of the what is on the birth certificate, unless they know to the contrary, is that the husband is the father. Now, of course, being the world that we live in, we have cases come through the office at the law office that right that we have to have paternity tests on the child born of this marriage because it's presumed that the husband is not the father. Right. So it's possible, but nothing gives us that in the scripture. So we don't really know. We don't have any definitive answer on that. So I just say that to say that. But what we do know is what the Lord wants this child to represent. No mercy. God will be merciless to the people of Israel because of their waywardness. If you thought mere defeat was bad, wait until you've tasted of the lack of the mercy of God. For it is God's mercy that causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. That's what Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. Matthew 5, 44 and 45 on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, right? So Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount says, love your enemies. Why should you love your enemies? Because God loves his enemies. He gives them sunshine when they need it, and he gives them rain when they need it. But God will not sit idly by while his people are unfaithful towards him. He will remove his mercy. He will no longer pity the people. He will show them compassion no more. Lo Ruhamah. That is what that name is in the Hebrew, which in the ESV, they just translate it and tell us that means no mercy because that's the point of this, right? We're supposed to get the meaning of the name, not just the name itself. Although you might have a little uh, footnote to that, what the actual name is. It's Lo Ruhamah. No mercy. Verse 7 tells us, though, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. God interjects that his people in Judah will yet be saved, and they're not going to be saved by their own strength. It's not because they're militarily strong that they're going to be saved, but they're going to be saved by the Almighty One. And this is something that we see fulfilled in the Scriptures on occasion, and on one such occasion during Hezekiah's reign, as the Assyrians are coming and beating down at the walls of Jerusalem, God delivers a message to the king through Isaiah. Now, I want us to look at that in Second Kings chapter nineteen, verses thirty-two through thirty-five. Second Kings chapter nineteen, verses thirty-two through thirty-five. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria: He shall not come into this city. Or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast a besieged mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Not by might, not by bow, not by their strength, but by me, God says, I will save the people of Judah. Judah did not stand because they were mighty enough to thwart the plans of the other kingdoms. They stood because the Lord God fought for them. To those of his people who remained faithful, there were blessings. To those that proved unfaithful time and again, To those that did this, there were curses, no mercy. And we might say, as uh, a pastor a long time ago did say, it is a frightful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Or as the scripture says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31, great and terrible is his wrath, and right and true are all his judgments. And let me here say to you, repent, turn back, turn to God. Whatever your case, whatever your state, 
Look unto the mercies of Christ Jesus this day. Do not delay, because today is the day of salvation. If you should remain in your unfaithfulness, even if you pretend to be faithful by saying, Lord, Lord, know that you will not escape the justice of God. And you will find on that day a God merciless. But there is yet a worse message for the people to hear. God not. I want to see that. I want us to see that in verses 8 and 9. God not. If what has happened is is quite literal or you know more than just a vision, everything that takes place in here is probably about five or six years. Right? Because you figure there's a year for um, a year for the child to be born. There's got to be some recoup time there. Um, and we also see that, uh, for instance, in verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. It's right, a little bit longer period because it's after she had been weaned. So probably about five or six years since the birth of Jezreel in, in total. And each time, as the people bear witness to another child of Hosea and Gomer, they bear witness to the judgment of God against them. And it's apparent that they have failed to listen each time. They should have heard Jezreel and said, we don't want that. When they heard no mercy, lo, Ruama. Lo, I don't want that. <laughs> right? But now they fail to listen. And here comes a third child. And the Lord said, call his name Loami, not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. This is a striking name to these people who in one breath acknowledge that the Lord is God and in the next breath pray to Baal and the Ashtoreth and worship them, the false gods of the land. God declares to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. He says to them, you may call me your God, but I am not. You may say that you are my people, but you are not. And this is a harrowing, frightful word from the Lord. Because what were the people of Israel to be? The people of God. This is what he said to them when they were just slaves in Egypt in Exodus 6. Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. This is not the only place he says it, but I want, to, want us to point out that at the, at the outset, as they were being delivered out of the land of Egypt, God says to them this in Exodus 6, 6 and 7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the people of the Egyptians." I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And now God says to them, I am not your God, and you are not my people. All the blessings that he had promised unto the people are hereby revoked. The benefits of being the people of the one true and living God, they're not yours, northern kingdom. This is a message of utter rejection as the years have passed as the children have come and been weaned as the people have had a chance to hear the word of the lord not just from hosea but also from those other prophets and and those who uh, spoke the word in truth the people of israel failed to respond they did not change they continued in their evil ways and so god gave them over to their sin the lord god will let them taste what their so-called gods can do for them. And what can the balls and the ashtoreth do? Nothing. Understand that throughout this book of Hosea, there is a constant call. Repent. Turn back. Turn to God. Turn from your sins. And if you do, there will be restoration. There can be forgiveness. And this is the message that we have today. 
There can be a reconciled relationship with God. There can be forgiveness from God. Though you sin and your sin before a holy God is an absolute affront to his character, he can yet have mercy and he can yet call you his people. But that is only true if you turn to him. This is the great work of Christ. This is what Christ Jesus came to this earth to do, to reconcile God and man. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 describes it this way. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him, and that is in Christ Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. It is by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross that you have any hope of reconciliation, of the forgiveness of your sins. And understand that all the evil that you commit is sin. That's what we mean by sin. Sin is the evil that you do. And that's whether you think it, that's whether you speak it, that's whether you do it. The things you think and say and do that are not in accord with God's commands are sin. And there is coming a day when you will stand before God and at that moment you will bear the consequences of your sins. Because in that moment he will no longer have mercy upon you. He will no longer bear any pity towards you. He will not show you the least bit of compassion. He will instead show you what it means that you are not his people. Unless you believe in Jesus Christ. Unless you look into the work of Jesus So confess your sin before God. Beg his forgiveness. Ask him to make in you a new heart. He is faithful. He will do it. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we should well heed this message. Because though we can never lose our salvation, we may yet bear the chastisement for our sins. God will not sit idly by while his people are unfaithful. He will call them to account. And we may be saved, but as though through fire. And that's not the way we want to be saved. And we should also bear in mind that there are people who consider themselves people of God who aren't. They are many within our own community who give lip service to Christ. And what I mean by that is they will say in one breath, Lord, Lord. And in the next breath, every kind of foul and unholy language that proves false what they just said right we saw that in the book of james when we went through the book of james right can can the same spring produce produce pure clean drinkable water and salty brackish undrinkable water how can it be that your mouth can in one breath praise god and the next breath curse man it can't be and yet there are many in our community who think that there are many who in following after false doctrines right i'm talking about cults and those uh, of false denominations who think that they know the way to salvation who think i'm i'm the people of god i'm one of the chosen And yet they are divorced from the truth of the Bible. They are not God's people. And let our message be unto them, brothers and sisters, the message of Hosea, even the message of Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. God will not sit idly by while his people are, while those who think they are his people are unfaithful are faithless. And may we never be named in that category. Let us pray. O great Father, our Father, our Heavenly Father, we come unto you. Father, and there, there is a real sense in which as we consider what your message is unto the people of Israel, the the people you had chosen and called your people. Lord, there is a sense in which we tremble. 
at the, at the message of Hosea, at what you have wrought in Hosea's life to show unto the people that they were not your people, that they would find no more mercy, and indeed that they would be slaughtered because of their evil ways. Father God, we confess that it is easy for us, even us, we who are your people, who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and adopted into your family. Father God, we confess that it is easy for us to live in such a way that we compromise your commands. Father God, we confess that it is easy for us in this culture of death around us, this culture that is given over to their sin, to buy into that. Father God, forgive us. Father God, renew our minds. Have mercy upon us yet. And God, we pray. God, we pray for those who are blinded to their sin, who think that by reciting, uh, God, reciting whatever it is, whether it's a prayer or, or any other thing, by going through some rote motion and, and claiming Jesus as their Lord, that that is good enough, that it doesn't matter how they live their lives, but they just, they, they just believe, uh, believe Lord, Lord, and, and that's good enough. And Father, we know this is a lie of Satan. It's a lie of sin. For you call us to be holy as you are holy. Not that we may earn our salvation, Lord. We know this. Not that we may earn our salvation, but Lord, that we may prove that we, indeed we are saved. That we may work out our faith with fear and trembling. And God, we confess that even in this we need your help because we know it is you who works in us both the will and to work for your good pleasure. But God, we pray that your spirit, that our message might be, even the message of Hosea, repent. Father God, we pray that your spirit would open blind eyes and remove uh, the, the lies and replace it with the truth the truth of your word, the truth of Christ Jesus. Father God, and help us to be bold, to speak the truth in love. God, we pray that you are honored, that you are glorified, that you are worshiped in you alone. It is to this end that we pray for your glory and for our good. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.